Tutorial Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, citizens of the world. Welcome to Forum Borealis. Tonight we have another program in our Polar Mysteries series, though it could also belong to our Esoteric Philosophy series. You know, the word Borealis comes from Latin and means northern from Boreas meaning north wind, which in turn is from Greek, where Boreas is the name of the god of the north wind, which is of unknown origin, perhaps related to words in Sanskrit, Giri, and Balto-Slavic, Gire, or as in Old Church Slavonic, Gora, for mountain, also forest, as if those living beyond the mountains. Hyperborea, in turn, means beyond the north or from the extreme north of the earth, from Greek hyperboreos, pertaining to the regions of the far north. In ancient times, the Hyperboreans were reckoned as a tribe or a nation, as the Hyperboreoi where an alleged northern people believed by the ancients to be distinguished by piety and happiness, their land being beyond, hence out of reach of the north wind. It was thought to be a blissful paradise. Closely related to this is Tula, which was a region or island at northernmost part of the world, from Greek Thela, meaning land six days sail north of Britain. As Strabo put it, quoting a lost portion of a work by Polybius, itself based on a lost account of a voyage to the north by the 4th century BC geographer Pythias. The identity of the place and the source of the name have sparked much speculation, and since Roman times the name has been used in a transferred sense of extreme limits of travel, or ultima thule. According to Pythias, the barbarians showed us where the sun set, for it happened in those places that the night was extremely short, lasting only two or three hours, and the sun sunk under the horizon, after a short interval reappeared at his rising. Now, one of the classic works on this subject is Professor Goodwin's scholarly treatment of polar legions, catastrophes, occult lore, the golden age, imperishable sacred land, the hidden lands, Arcadia regained, the symbolic pole, polar and solar traditions, the spiritual pole, the northern lights, the arctic homeland, the Aryan myth, UFOs, the hollow earth, the hidden kingdom of Agartha and Chambala and much more. This enthralling book is called Arctos, the polar myth in science, symbolism and Nazi survival. It has stood almost alone since it was published in 96, that is, until now. 
Finally, another worthy publication, a sequence, if you will, of this subject is out, and by none other than one of Goodwin's friends and colleagues, namely the Emeritus Christopher Mackintosh. In his book, Beyond the North Wind, the Fall and Rise of the Mystic North, he examines how the North is simultaneously a location, a direction and a mystical concept. Although this concept has ancient roots in mythology, folklore and fairy tales, it continues to resonate today within modern culture. Mackintosh leads the reader through the magical and spiritual history of the North, as well as its modern manifestations, as documented through physical records, such as rune stones and megaliths, but also through mythology and lore. This mythic conception of a unique, powerful and mysterious northern civilization was known to the ancients and considered to be the true origin place of their god, Apollo, bringer of civilization. Through the Greeks, this concept of the mythic north would spread throughout western civilization further he discusses russian neo-hyperboreanism which he describes as among the most influential of the new religions and quasi-religious movements that have sprung up in russia since the fall of communism and which is currently almost unknown in the west and so we are fortunate to have this distinguished academic author of many esoteric works on as a guest. Dr. Christopher McIntosh is a writer, historian and translator, specializing in the esoteric traditions of the West. He was born at Autumn Equinox in England in 1943 and grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, where he first attended the Edinburgh Academy. He then studied philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford University, then took a degree in German at London University, later returning to Oxford to take a doctorate in history. With a dissertion on the Rosicrucian revival, this has since been published as a book. He also has a diploma in Russian from the United Nations Language School. After working in London in journalism and publishing, Mackintosh spent four years in New York as an information officer with the United Nations Development Programme then moved to Germany to work for UNESCO in Hamburg. In parallel, he has traveled throughout the world, as well as achieved a career as a writer and researcher specializing in the esoteric traditions, as well as paganism. Indeed, he has had a lifelong interest in nature-oriented belief systems, and also involved himself at a personal basis with small circles within such traditions. He's published both fiction and non-fiction, and we're going to review a few of those titles today. 
Christopher McIntosh has lectured widely and was for several years on the faculty of the Centre for the Study of Esotericism at Exeter University, a legendary distance MA programme in Western Esotericism in England, organised by Dr. Nicholas Goodrick Clark, but now sadly discontinued. Uh, incidentally, we have talked with a colleague of his from those days, Tobias Churton, who goes a little more into that laudable project in our show with him. Another note worthy venture where he has been a frequent speaker is uh, the Esoteric Quest conferences organized by Ralph White and the New York Open Center. Chris McIntosh has naturally been interviewed by and featured in many documentaries and TV programs like The New Age and The New Man, and also several journals like Gnosis Magazine and websites like pansoffers.com, and of course radio shows and podcasts like Spybrary, Spy Podcast and The Higher Side Chats. Christopher is married to the German scholar of religion, Dr. Donate Panke McIntosh, who runs the Selen Institute for Rituals, where they reside in Bremen, Lower Saxony in North Germany. Together they have the website vanadis.org, and in addition, Chris runs his own website, osgard.net. That's Osgard with a set. Enjoy. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Chris. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Such a pleasure to have you. An honor, actually, because as I've told you offline, I have been an avid reader of you for many, many years because obviously you're one of the cornerstones of academic esoteric, I think we should say, on the line with Jocelyn Godwin and... Also your friend uh, Tobias Churton that we've had on before. Oh, yes. And we'll have him back. Mm. Now, I have to tell you that I've been fascinated about the topic of the polar myths. And indeed, one of the first shows I wanted to do when we started was with your colleague Jocelyn Goodwin that I mentioned and his book Arctos that you obviously are familiar with. <coughs> yes. And... Uh, I mean, I, I love that book. And unfortunately, he doesn't give interviews anymore. <laughs> he had just stopped right before uh, we asked. So, uh, and the years went, we actually covered Antarctica in a show. And bam, here you come. And you launch a fresh book on a similar topic, at least, called Beyond the North Wind, The Fall and Rise of the Mystic North. Very intriguing. So uh, this made, of course, a great reason to get you on. And uh, I, I guess my first question is, why would you want to write about this topic? Well, when I was going to school back in the 1950s and 60s, the version of history we were taught was basically that civilization, or Western civilization at least, spread from south to north. So it all began roughly in the region that is now Iraq, 
and then went via the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and further and further north. And a key moment was when Europe was Christianized. <clears throat> and since then, we've never looked back. That was the picture that we were given. Mm. So the early inhabitants of northern Europe tended to be written off as primitive barbarians. And one of the few things I remember being taught about the ancient Egyptian, the ancient Britons, was that they dyed their skins blue with a substance called woad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that in, you know, the cartoon Asterix. Ah, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so I used to imagine these mysterious blue-skinned figures right. moving through the mystic, the mist-laden forests of ancient Britain and occasionally grunting to each other <laughs> in what passed for language. Um, well, we now know that that picture was completely false. We now know that there was an advanced civilization in northern Europe long before the Romans or even the Egyptians or the Egyptian civilization existed. Uh, hang on. How, how far back are we estimating this? Oh, we're going back to um, at least 4000 BC. Jeez. Because I've been fascinated by, uh, I've read about, and you may know this, I've read about the original inhabitants of the British Isles, or at least uh, in Scotland, at the end of Scotland, there used to be more land there. And I'm not even referring to so-called Doggerland that's uh, mm. in between. but and, and there are some myths about ancient people who lived there before. Oh, oh, yes. Well, there, there were the Picts, and we know very little about the Picts, but they've left behind some very interesting remains, which indicated that, that they also had an advanced culture. When do we estimate that the Picts lived? Uh, I'm afraid I can't give you an exact date, but um, they, were, they were still around when the Romans came, mm. um, which would have been first century BC. But... Um, Talking about Scotland, there were some very interesting remains discovered in eastern Scotland. Uh, these were stone spheres about the size of a tennis ball, which were shaped in such a way as to represent the platonic solids. These are the solid geometric shapes that Plato describes in the Timaeus. Mm. The uh, tetrahedron cube, octahedron, and so on. Now, the interesting thing is that Plato's Timaeus dates, I think, from around, I'm not sure exactly, but um, five, six hundred BC. Whereas, uh, I think maybe 400. Uh, 400. Oh, yeah, because Pythagoras lived 500 and he was a predecessor. Oh, right. Well, but these stone spheres uh, date back to about three or four thousand. Jeez. Uh, three or four thousand BC. So uh, that means that there was a civilization at that time which knew about the platonic solids. Mm. So that gives you an idea of uh, how false the the picture was of um, of ancient the the ancient Britons. Yeah, obviously Plato can't have invented it out of thin air. He must have been privy to some ancient tradition. And well, exactly. This indicates, right? And this indicates that there may have been commonalities between right. real ancient traditions in the East and the West. 
Yes, uh, uh, this is one of the indirect pieces of evidence that there was some kind of precursor civilization in the north. Uh, we also have things like the, the Viking ships, those beautiful streamlined ships that you see in, for example, the Viking Museum in Oslo, uh, like the Oseberg ship. Mm. Now, um, the, the curator of that museum has said that it would take thousands of years to thousands of years of trial and error to come up with a design like that. So the, the question is where, where that technology came from. Yeah, because obviously the Vikings didn't, the Viking era didn't even last a thousand years. So oh. they must have uh, inherited, I mean, they must have been a culmination of some kind of tradition or evolution going on there. Yes. Or maybe a devolution. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm. And I agree with you because uh, we also know now that even even as recent in this perspective, recently back as the Vikings, we've got stuff so wrong. And there is this revival interest in Vikings now. We have this show uh, on um, a series going and okay, it's not as bad as Vikings having horn on the helmet. Okay, we moved away <laughs> right. from there. But yeah. there's so many things people don't know. For example, the Vikings, they, they look at them as uh, you call them in your book, you call them the samurai of the West. Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good expression. But yes. they were into fashion, actually. They put great pride in how they dressed themselves. They were snobs, I'd say. Um, and uh, they had um, uh, refined uh, cultural aspects that are lost, that we are not so aware of now. But we'll, we'll discuss that later. I want to mm. track even further back because the stuff you've been saying now indicates what's popularly called an antediluvian civilization and obviously we have uh, the expression hyperborea that we got from yes. the greeks yes and you touch upon this in your book don't you yes <clears throat> yes i do the the notion of hyperborea goes back to a greek mariner called pythias who set sail from the greek colony of massalia which is present-day marseille and sailed out through the strait of Gibraltar into the Atlantic and then up into the north. And he came to a land which he describes as a land of ice and fog, which may have been Iceland. We're not absolutely sure, but it, it sounds as though it must have been Iceland. Going for, from today's geography. Yes, yes. But stuff may have been different back then. Well, possibly, yes. But um, at any rate, Pythias's account of this place, he called it Tula. Mm. Or the Romans called it Ultima Tula. And um, this notion of Tula gathered a mystique about it. Another name for it was Hyperborea, meaning the land beyond the north, the land beyond Boreas, the north wind. Mm. So, how long uh, do you estimate it would take for them to sail from Greece to Iceland? Uh, do you have any notion about that? No, I'm. Uh, <laughs> Difficult for me to answer that question. I, I, I would imagine several weeks. Okay, because um, according to... I, I looked up the etymology of Tula, because Borea is simple. That means, like you say, ultimate north. Or, or yes, of, yeah. yes. The ultimate Tula, they are disputing the origin. Uh, they think it means the end, 
related to Telos. Oh, yes. Or the most, right, the most remote land. But there is a reference that the Brits, that that, that it's, um, uh, they call it, uh, that it took six days from the British Isles to get there. Really? And then I'm thinking, does it take six days to sail to Iceland? I I don't think so. I, I think that would be done in probably couple of days depending on the technology of course yes yes um yes so that indicates that it must have been further north than iceland Mm. yes that's interesting So, what do we do how do we have other clues that there may have been habitable areas i mean we just a so simple thing as greenland yeah we know it was green because it was uh, before the Little Ice Age, and, and the Vikings could even um, do agriculture there, and uh, today that's not possible. But back in the day, there may even have been lost lands. So uh, you have, are you touching this in your book? Yes, <clears throat> yes, I do. We know that there have been climatic changes in the far north. For example, there's there've been vegetation found in the north of Canada in places like the Faroe Islands and Spitsbergen, which indicate that at one time there was a mild temperate climate in those places. There are various reasons why that might have been the case. One theory that Jocelyn Godwin describes in his book Arctos is that at one time the Earth's axis may have been vertical. Mm which would have meant that there would, have, there would have been no change of seasons and the temperate zone would have reached much further north, much further north than it does now. So that's one, one indication that the conditions may have been suitable for a civilization in the north. But if there has been a dramatic tilt, then we can also assume that there may have been land masses further north that have now sunken. Otherwise, we will have to look to, like you say, Spitsbergen. Yes. Up in the, our neck of the woods. Or uh, maybe Greenland or the very northern parts of, of Russia and Canada. But... Indeed, a, a, a tilt is such a dramatic... Well, it is, yes. Yes, there, there are other possible ways to, to account for the climatic change. Mm-hmm. The, if you think of the Earth's surface as the, as the shell of an egg, which can slide back and forth, mm. it, it's possible that the, the surface of the, of the Earth has slid at one point. So these, these places were further south. It's also possible to account for it by um, warm currents like the Gulf Stream, right. which may have had a different flow at that time. But you, you mention Russia as a, northern Russia as a possible location for this early civilization. And this is another thing that I've gone into in the book, because there have been some fascinating discoveries made in the northern part of Russia next to the Arctic Ocean. There were there have been several expeditions there. The one expedition took place in the 1920s. It was led by a man called Bachenko, mm-hmm. who went to the Kola Peninsula, uh, right up there in the north on the Arctic Ocean, and he found all kinds of things like uh, paved roads, p- 
pyramids, stone pyramids, wow. um, a, a huge throne made, carved out of a solid block of stone, and all kinds of other things, which indicate that there must have been a culture in that region with great technical capacities. The strange thing is that there don't seem to have been any human remains discovered from that period. The only remains that have been found indicate a, a rather primitive kind of hunter-gatherer kind of people. Yeah, but it could, so, would we expect human remains to last for thousands of years? Well, it, in other parts of the world they have. Mm. And after all, the, the, the remains of mammoths. So that's that's a a, a right. bit of a puzzle a bit of a puzzle and unless there was a population that unless there was a mass exodus took took, right. uh, took place right. or, or or like in Gobekli Tepe they say it's people didn't live there uh, they say it was uh, a ceremonial place where they gathered yes uh, regularly yes uh, this yes. place sounds like it could be something like that too yes if it has pyramids and thrones it doesn't sound so practical i don't think they were doing agriculture there <laughs> no well um the the bachenko expedition made contact with the local sami people in that region mm. and the, the sami people had um, a particular island that was located in the white sea or in the no i think in the in a lake in the in the middle of the Kola peninsula mm. and this was a sacred place for the samis where they they used to bury their dead and they had a particular cult of the reindeer and this this island was was covered with 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 reindeer horns and no one was allowed to to go there without special permission and the sami had all kinds of beliefs and and practices which led Bachenko to conclude that they were the original hyperboreans mm. so he he was convinced or, or the descendants of, of them or, or, or the descendants yeah. yes um so he was convinced that he had in fact found hyperborea but um it's very difficult to say where <clears throat> where hyperborea might have been located there are other candidates for the possible location yeah it sounds to me he's going in a, in the same trap as the atlantis researchers they find uh, signs of uh, yes. very an ancient and then i think this is the place right. but then they discard the fact that if it was a somewhat advanced civilization you wouldn't expect it to be just a town at a certain place. It would probably be spread in a, in yeah. a larger area. Yes. So I think maybe this is a track. But what does the myths of the Inuits and uh, Samis say? Do they have any... What's the ancient myths in these areas? Well, well the, the interesting thing is that all the indigenous people around the pole, around the Arctic Circle... Mm -hmm. Uh, have a shamanic culture from the Inuit from Greenland all the way around to Alaska and then the various Mongol peoples of of uh, Russia uh, the Buryat and the um, uh, what what the the, the um, uh, what's the other the other Sami people the the other any anyway going uh, you mean Eskimos 
No, I mean the um, the yak, uh, Yakut. The oh yak, yeah, right. The Yakut right. and the Buryat and mm. the and and then the the Sami in northern Scandinavia. All these all the way around the round the Arctic Circle um, were shamanic peoples mm. sharing a, a shamanic culture. So um, the, <clears throat> this is this is extremely interesting. Indeed. I mean, there are other landmasses that hasn't been excavated, like uh, Yuzni Island, Svalbard, um, oh, yes. Samlia, um, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, all around the Barents Sea. So I wouldn't be surprised if if we ever digged at these areas, they, stuff would pop up. But, you know, they're, they're not yes. even digging in areas where we know there is stuff. There's no interest in money for <laughs> no, it. So. no. Well, the, it's the, just it's just like a, by accident they discover something. Yes, yes. Well, but there seems to have been human habitation in, in that region of northern Russia, going back, I think, as as far as forty thousand years BC, mm. because they found, for example, a mammoth, which had wounds on it that indicated that it had been hunted, mm. with a spear or some sharp. What was this mammoth frozen in the ice since? Yes, yeah, yes, right, right, yes. Right. And that also indicates a dramatic climate change. Yes, absolutely, yes. So even if the earth didn't tilt or if the land masses didn't move, it would be habitable within the current structure of the geography. Yes, yes. It's it's uh, not a very hospitable climate, but it is habitable. Mm. So, have you found other circumstantial evidence pointing to an ancient lost civilization in in the far north? Um, I think you mentioned something in another interview about Svalbard. I do, I don't recall. <laughs> Me neither. But you said you said something interesting about Svalbard. What was it? Um, I, don't, I, I don't recall that. Yes, or was it about the language or, or scriptures? Oh, oh, oh yes, yes. Um, well, there was um, an English researcher called J.G. Bennett. He's he's actually better known as a as a proponent of the Gurdjieff movement. But, ah, uh, Bennett. Yes, he's he's famous. J.G. Yes. J.G. Bennett. Yes. yes. Well, he wrote a very interesting essay about a theory that to, to do with language. And what he says basically is, if you look at the European language, the the Indo-European language, and the languages that are descended from it, they're they're extremely complicated. If you look, for example, at a language like Russian, it has six cases, it has enormously complex verb forms, um, complex grammatical rules. And Bennett's argument is, Basically, a language of that complexity couldn't just have uh, evolved by trial and error. It had to have been invented mm. by a group of people. And he says the the ideal conditions to invent such a language would be when you had a a community of people who were cut off from the the, the rest of the world, and for a certain period. And so he 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 believes that this was this took place in the Arctic region at a time when it was cut off. It was there was a kind of oasis, a kind of temperate oasis in the midst of the ice, cut off by a kind of ice barrier. Mm. 
Um, and, and then at a certain point, the ice retreated and these people were, were able to migrate out of the north and, and dispersed. Mm. So I, I can um, I can see the I can see that that argument. Mm. Yeah, often one uses linguistics in order to back up archaeology and anthropology yes. and other stuff. So that's yeah. uh, totally legitimate. Yes. But there, of course, we could go, take it much further down the rabbit hole and introduce an alternative explanation, namely the hollow earth. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. <laughs> Which is a kind of a, a fun... Uh, at least I think it's it's uh, a, a more advanced theory than the flat Earth. Yes, <laughs> At yes. least it acknowledges basic astronomical facts. Yes. Now, I've had actually a physician as a guest who argues for the hollow Earth. It has been a myth dominated by nutcases and re religious people. But there are even scientific indications that could back up such for example two japanese uh, scientists have discovered and this made shock waves in the scientific community that mm. there is underneath our sea uh, uh, the sea uh, ground uh, underneath mm. the earth there is more oceans than above the surface of the earth <coughs> really yes and that's very weird mm. and they uh, they try of course they, they have to explain it within the current paradigm right so they're not jumping to hollow earth but mm. it uh, there, there are many tidbits like this that mm. Mm. Uh, one could entertain if one yes. really wanted to be good willed yes so do you touch the hollow earth explanation <laughs> in your book no uh, no i don't no <laughs> okay but <laughs> But to give them their due. So they say if you go beyond the fog mm -hmm. and the ice, it starts getting warmer. Uh, and, yes, yes. And you have an observation of this. I don't know if you mentioned that in the book, people who have observed warm zones at the poles. Uh, no, but but all that is very fascinating. Indeed. And, uh, of course, it uh, crops up in literature, like in Edward Bulwer-Lytton's novel, The Coming Race, and real, yes, real. Real, yes. Yeah. And in Jules Verne's story, The Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yes, I, I did mention that, actually, in, in my book, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, okay, okay. And, and notwithstanding our, uh, he's from my hometown, uh, Ludwig Holberg. People think he was Danish, but he wrote about Nils Klim's journeys to... to the I think it's if I trans the center of the earth or the inner earth. For some reason, there was a lot of books in literature dealing with this mm. topic. So it has been a, a, an old tradition going far, far back that has been kept alive. And if we take it seriously, then they claim. I mean, one thing is to imagine that the earth is hollow. I guess uh, you could make a case for that if you consider some anomaly in science. Oh, but yes, another yeah. thing is to claim that you can go through the holes <laughs> and there are people <laughs> living there. Yeah. And that's when we yes. we really come uh, go into the rabbit hole. And we could invoke there, of course, Nazi lore, neo-Nazi lore about this. Yes. And also um, in Tibet and, and stuff like that. So, so well, then, yeah. Then there's the, the, there's the whole uh, myth, myth of Agartha, right, which is also supposed to be an underground civilization, 
And right. uh, in fact, if you go on the Internet and Google Agatha, you'll find that uh, there are people who still believe that Agatha exists. Yes, and, and uh, uh, Shambhala is another... And, and Shambhala, yes. Yeah. Nicholas Rorish ro uh, was looking for Shambhala. Yes. Uh, as was Blavatsky, Gurdjieff. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, the whole... And I think Lama Govinda The whole, the whole Shambhala story is very fascinating. This is... What, one of the things that has always fascinated me is the, the interface between history and myth. Mm. The, the way that the way that history turns into myth and myth often drives history. And the whole Shambhala story is an example of myth driving history. Mm. Because, as you say, there was the Rurik expedition uh, and the Bolsheviks used the Shambhala myth to try to gain hegemony over Central Asia. It was all it was part of the whole great game, the struggle between Russia and Britain for, wow, for control of that region. Wow. So, and, and Rurik, well, the whole story of Rurik is, is extremely interesting. Uh, indeed, this explains yeah. maybe why the Bolsheviks offered to Rurik to become cultural minister right after the revolution. I, I mean, this was obviously before the Stalinist period. This was yes, when yes. everything was new and fresh and nothing was shaped yet but he yes. he find them to be too vulgar so he he declined the offer but then i see what usage they would have of him because if they were pushing that myth yeah <laughs> he would be a great because he was a famous explorer already back in yes. the day yes yes interesting mm. And do we know other archaeological anomalies uh, indicating or, or scientific anomalies indicating uh, an advanced civilization in the north? Well, there's a very interesting book by an Italian researcher, uh, Vinci. Um, Vinci, I forget his, I get his first name, uh, who uh, wrote a very interesting book called The Baltic Origins of Homer's Epic Tales. Mm. And he claims in that book that the places described in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey weren't located around the Mediterranean, but around the Baltic Sea. And he comes up with some very interesting evidence for this, that, uh, for example, uh, from, from linguistics, like um, the the name for the Aegean Sea comes from the Nordic god Egir, the, the sea god. Mm. And there are other other pieces of evidence, like in, in Homer, the Peloponnese is described as a flat island, when in fact we know that it was a mountainous peninsula. And there, there's an island in the Baltic which exactly corresponds to Homer's description. And the, 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 the way that the the way that Homer's characters, the, the way they dress, the food they eat and so on, mm. it all corresponds to the, the Baltic region and not to the Mediterranean. Um, That's interesting, the, but, but Homer uh, is believed to have taken place in Greece. Is that a traditional interpretation? Well, well what, you see, what, what um, uh, Vinci argues is that there was there was a... A civilization around the around the Baltic mm -hmm. and, and Scandinavia, um, which at some point migrated to the Mediterranean region and Greece, taking with them an ancient 
epic tradition. Ah. You see? Yeah. So um, Homer was just um, picking up on this, this much earlier tradition. Mm. This, would, uh, this is interesting because this would be a disagreement, uh, an alternative explanation to Dr. Peter Kingsley's take. Yes. Because I believe he describes the same ancient seafaring people, but he, I think he argues that they come from... Central Asia, uh, yes, Altai, yes, but, but still they agree in one fact, and that they come from the north. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And and Kingsley also argues that the the sh- shamanism um, aspect that you touch. Yes, and yes. Uh, he says that Abaris. Uh, yes, the, Abaris the Hyperborean. Yes, exactly, and and he was uh, said to have. Uh, uh, met, for example, Pythagoras. He he gave him a gift. Ah, uh, oh, yes, yes. Know, the arrow. Yes. And he thinks that's related to the people called Avaris, oh, yes. which is an interesting suggestion. Yes, it is. Avarians. Yes, yes. Uh, and then there's the the theory of Tilak, the the Indian, uh, the Indian writer, Bal Gangadhar Tilak. Mm-hmm who wrote an interesting book called the, the I think it's, it's called The Aryan Home in the Vedas. And he came up with evidence from the Vedic texts, which seems to confirm the idea that there was um, this primal homeland in the far north. Mm. I mean, uh, for example, he, he describes how in the Vedas, there's mention of a place with a dawn of many days, which appears to refer to the fact that at the North Pole, in the North Pole region, there's basically a, a, a year is basically a day and a night. So you have... Um, oh, that's right. If you go north of the polar circle, they have... Yeah. Uh, it's famous in our country because people living up there get, go crazy. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> six months yes. of daylight, six months yes. of darkness. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, Tilak claims that this was the original home of the people that he calls the Aryans who then migrated to India mm. and, and, and wrote the Vedic texts. Uh, but, but, but isn't it mainstream now that, I mean, the reason the language is called Indo-European is precisely yeah. the connection. We know there's connection in mythology and religion. Yeah. Yes. And, and genetically, I th- even think that, I mean, India is full of ethnicities, but the original Veda Indians... Mm. are connected to the Scandinavians and so but the traditional I think interpretation is that the Scandinavians emigrated out of India to the West but then you have of course you you know about um, Tur Heyerdahl right yes indeed yes yes he claims that we originated around the Black Sea Uh, maybe not originated but at some point Odin was an actual figure who emigrated oh yes yes Yes, indeed. This, the, the, Do you touch this? Well, the, this is what um, a Snorri thought, actually. Snorri Sturluson, who who wrote down the the Edda, wrote the prose Edda. He he believed that Odin was a historic figure who became mythologized. Mm. But I, I think um, I, I tend to think that Thor Heyerdahl was right, that um, the Indo-Europeans emerged somewhere in the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Um, several thousand years BC and then migrated in two directions. Mm. 
um, one one group went west and the other went east of India. So I think that's a more likely scenario than that they originated in India and then went west. Yeah, yeah. But what if we acknowledge the possibility of uh, an antediluvian northern civilization? Then they could have uh, had an exodus, like you suggested, for the Kola Peninsula. Yes, yes. And they may have gone to that area of Caucasus, Caucasian mm. area between Caspian and Black Sea, and then split east and west. Yes, yes, that's that's possible, yes, yes. Mm. So um, this also, of course, touches upon uh, the rune phenomenon, because <clears throat> I, I believe that traditional tale is that Odin observed the sacred language Yes. And tools of the other tribes, like the hieroglyphs and uh, mm. uh, also the Hebrew system. And he felt that, yeah, what's the story? Do you know that story there? That, oh, yes, yes. Mm. Well, it's it, it's a kind of the description of how Odin received the secrets of the runes is a typical shamanic ordeal. So uh, this, this is one of the things that uh, makes me think that shamanism was it was in fact the original region the original original uh, religion mm. of um, the north so uh, this is this is described in the edda how odin hung for nine days and nights on the world tree the yggdrasil and as a result of this he obtained the secrets of the runes so but the the runes the, there are a number of mysterious things about the runes the first inscriptions using the, the runic alphabet as we as we know it today date from around the around the second century AD. Um, so they they appear to have been invented around that time. They're a, an ex, it's an extremely subtle and sophisticated system with all kinds of um, interesting in, internal patterns and mathematical. Uh, mathematical patterns mm. so uh, it seems to me that it was invented by a group of people perhaps perhaps a group of uh, priests of the the old nordic religion and then spread it spread uh, enormously rapidly throughout northern europe um, then several centuries later i think i think around the around the uh, 9th century AD, an, another version of the runes was invented. The, the first, uh, the, the runic alphabet is called the Futhark, after the first three letters in the, mm. in the alphabet. And um, there was the elder Futhark, which consisted of 24 letters, and then the younger Futhark um, had only 16. And it's a, it's a bit of a mystery why the, the younger Futhark was invented, because... Um, in order to reduce it to 16, they had to uh, make some letters stand for two different sounds. That's not um, very practical. It's it's not it's not very practical. So um, it's uh, a bit of a mystery why this younger futhark was invented. Could, could it just be that the we we don't have enough that it's just fragments of a system? It's not complete in what we have today. Um, I think that's that's unlikely because it okay. does seem to have been used as a complete system. But you also have the so-called Uthark. Oh, the Uthark, yes. Well, that's 
that's the theory that there were. Well, you have to remind me exactly what it is. Well, uh, there are those who say that it should not begin with an F. Uh, right. Yes. Professor Agrell argues, in fact, that there was. Was it Agrell who argued that? I have some old scriptures that say that there was really 25 letters because there was one secret that they would not reveal. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and that makes it suddenly very resonating with uh, the Greek alphabet, yeah. the Hebrew alphabet, ah, yes. the hieroglyphs. And, and then you can start seeing practical... Um, um, connections across these ancient systems because what many people don't understand is that the ancient systems were not just alphabets mm. they were multi-layered tools they were referring to oh, yes. ideas right. magical practices images yes, yes. etc etc yes. sounds obviously right yes 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 they, uh, the, the, the the runes were a, a magical system and a system of divination mm. Which is very well known for today. Yes, yes. So, um, the runes, uh, but you say the oldest religion, or you say that shamanism may be a remnant of the original Nordic religion. Yes. So, um, do, do we think that the old Nordic religion was more coherent then and, and more advanced than these fragments that has been passed on to the northern cultures of of more recent uh, times? Y- yes. <clears throat> yes, I think it was a, a complete shamanic system. But at some point, the shamanic elements got, got lost or fragmented. So that today we only have certain isolated hints like for example the story of odin mm. and the runes and 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 a few other hints i mean like there is um, an old german text the um, the merseburg spells which describe what what appears to be a, a shamanic well a, a, it, it it involves the healing of a, a horse with a broken leg and uh, the way the way this is described seems to indicate that it was a um a shamanic healing operation so there are only very very few these these few hints but i think that they do they do indicate that there was a shamanic culture in the north hmm. and i mean there are, there are there's there's evidence for example that pythagoras was a kind of shaman because his his followers went in for things like um, trance journeys, shape changing, and so on, all things that are that were uh, that are shamanic practices. Yeah, Dr. Kingsley writes a lot about that. Yes. he makes such a solid case. I recommend everyone ah, yes. to check it out. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. And, and the incubation system where you you have to lay in um, yeah you travel to the worlds beneath ah yes 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 and above and, and I, I think also uh, pythagoras's mathematical discoveries may well have been um, arrived at in in a, a, a shamanic altered state of consciousness mm. yeah i happen to think it's a combination of deep uh, personal insight but also an inheritance and that's always the 
kind of uh, the, the the problem that when you find similarities, like you mentioned, the platonic mm. solids or yeah. other ancient similarities that cannot be explained by the traditional logistics, if you will. No, no, no. Then uh, mm. you always have this polarity or dichotomy of either it's an inheritance, a physical inheritance, yeah, or yeah. it's uh, or it's an unveiling. Mm. of um, archetypes yes yes but i often say it can be both it can be both yes yes absolutely like you get so certain keys and each generation explore them in different directions with different takes mm. but there will be mm. similarities mm. can we say that the runes have indications of being more than just a local system or or that they have indications of being older than what we tend to believe uh, oh well uh, <laughs> There's um, a researcher whom we, we both know, uh, Halvard Harklau, who has done a very interesting analysis of the runes, mathematical analysis. And uh, well, it's, it's very complicated to describe, but um, it involves the fact that the runes are made up of um, four different kinds of stroke, mm. uh, or three, no, three different kinds, vertical, left-leaning, and right-leaning. And uh, by, count, by dividing the, the, the runes into rows and counting the number of strokes in each row and so on, he arrived at some very interesting patterns. And one of the patterns he arrived at indicated a link to the Chinese Bagua system, which is mm. sim similar to the I Ching, except it's using trigrams instead of hexagrams. Right. Um, so, so he found that um, there was a an exact an exact correspondence hmm. um, between between the runes and and these trigrams, so which indicates that I, either that um, there was some influence from uh, Scandinavia to Asia, or or the other way round, or that there was some common source. Yes, or that if they are tapping into the structures of existence, so to speak, like yeah. our, our default archetypal nature of things, then they yeah. will both uncover similar, if not identical, at least similar principles. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, but again, it can be both. Yes, it can, can be. be both. We live in a very complex world, and I think uh, he's onto it. Uh, yes, yes. So that's very interesting. Mm. Now, if um, yeah, and by the way, we even know that the Vikings actually had uh, they they found uh, figures. They even found, I think, Yin Yang, but they found Asian. Oh yes, the, the, and the, the, Middle the, Eastern. Uh, a Buddha figure. Buddha figure, yes, yes for example, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. and they found uh, Islamic symbolism too. Uh, well, I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical about that, to be quite honest. Okay. Uh, yeah, there was some somebody in in Norway who claimed that um, those the sort of the embroidered borders on Viking uh, the dresses of Viking women mm. contained uh, Arabic uh, letters. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but, yeah. but I, I, quite frankly, I'm very skeptical about that. <laughs> well, again, it can be, uh, you know, uncovering uh, patterns. Well, possibly, yes. Universal patterns, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you're going to embroider something, you'd be hard-pressed not to accidentally touch an Arabian letter because they are very embroidered. Well, that's true. <laughs> by yes, nature. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> 
No, the, all this is very interesting. But if we look at the more hard facts, uh, uh, I mean the hard evidence rather than the soft, mm. we obviously can't avoid megaliths and structures such as that. Now, many people think that stuff like Stonehenge were made by the Druids. Mm, mm. What do you think about this? Oh, I think that it goes back probably long before the Druids. Mm. Um, Stonehenge is an amazing structure and um, it must have required a culture with enormous technical capacities. I mean, it's been estimated that it would have taken the entire population of Britain at that time about, I think, about seven years Jeez. just to raise the central circle of stones. Wow. And how they got how they got the stones there in the first place is is a great mystery because they they're, they're not local. Mm. Um, so um, the the, ar the archaeologist Stuart Piggott, writing about Stonehenge, said, "Well, this is such uh, this is evidence of such an advanced culture that it must have come. It, c it can't have been local. It must the technology must have been imported mm. from um, the Mediterranean region." So uh, he he sort of um, fell into this habit of uh, dis dismissing the dismissing the ancient northern northern Europeans as as primitive. Right, but he, well, he he's managed defeat to be right and wrong at the same time because really <laughs> oh yeah the reason is that wow. he's right in that it's too advanced to just be something a few people in an area where they were not uh, capable just threw up that's that's okay but then yeah. just because there is no paradigm for him mm. to explain it otherwise yeah. he automatically yeah. goes to the middle east yeah well or, or to the mediterranean yes yeah, mm. yeah. Might... and that's just by default there's no evidence uh, mm. okay they have megaliths there too but uh, megalithic structures are are universal are they not they're global um, yes, they they occur all over the all over the world. Um, there are some very interesting, uh, very uh, interesting megaliths, uh, for example, in the Orkney Islands. Ah, the standing um, stones of the Orkney Islands. Uh, I've heard about that. Yeah. Yes, um, I forget the I forget the name of the site now, but it um, it's it's a most interesting site because it it has two enclosures a larger and a smaller one mm -hmm. and this they appear to represent a maternal womb and a fetus and they contain for example the golden section mm. the golden section so what what looks like a very simple structure is in fact in fact contains all kinds of complex mathematical proportions um Excellent. yeah so so yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that's the same for the. Um, that's another argument for the Stonehenge too. Indeed, yes. The astronomical. It's too complex. Yes. F to explain it with, within the traditional. <clears throat> that's right. Yeah. And and you know uh, René Schwala de Lubitsch. Uh, yes. He kind of made every good case for such complexities also in Egyptian structures. Yes, he did. So, 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 and you, then you have, of course, um, Chathal Hayuk or something. Chathal Hayuk, yes. Yes, and, and Gebekli Tepe, both of them yes. 
both of them debunk the notion that these were hunter-gatherers that just oh, threw yes, yes. together a few stones. It's just too complex. <laughs> too complex, yes. Both, both in the way they erect it, like you say, where, where did the stone come from? Yes. But more interesting also in what they signify. Yes, yes, yes. And do you think that can be connected to the ancient religion? Um, well, I, th I think it probably is, yes. So the priesthood were like scientists in a way. Yeah. And, and priests at the same yes. time. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Mm. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. So uh, let's let's go into the paganism. Are there any evidence or indications among the ancient and especially the Nordic paganism that points to uh, an advanced origin? Well, there are interesting correspondences mm -hmm. between the Nordic paganism and, for example, the, the classical uh, deities. Now, um, I think there's a strong case that the name Apollo is, in fact, cognate with Baldur, the, the northern sun god, because you you only need to change uh, I mean B and P are, are similar consonants so mm. you only need to change the the B to a P and R and O and a long O a long A sounds like an O so it's not a not a great step from Baldur to Apollo mm. so I think that they they are in fact the same god and uh, I I mentioned earlier Egir so you have the Nor the, the Nordic sea god Egir and the the Aegean the name Aegean. So, ah. yeah, that, uh, like, like in the Aegean Ocean. Yes, yes, right, exactly. Right, right, right. Mm. Um, and uh, someone we both know, um, uh, Haraldur. He, um, when I told him I, I live near Bremen, he said that he thought that the name Bremen comes from the, the Nordic sea god Brimir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, right. Um, right. I'm actually going to have Haraldur on to discuss uh, because he's been researching uh, ancient Icelandic connections. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Yes. So he has some uh, uh, groundbreaking uh, theories there. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's interesting. But um, I, I know there there have been similarities between Sami Lap. Mm. Uh, traditions mm. and uh, ancient Norse religion mm. and the same I think can also be made a case for the Eskimos you know oh and yes so you do, you do you touch this in your book uh, well yeah yes I mean um, one uh, typical motif among all the shamanic peoples is is the notion of the world tree mm. Um, the tree at the center of the world. So some, in, in, sometimes it's, it's a tent pole, which becomes symbolically the center of the world. And um, so you, you get this all over the all over the shamanic world, and you get it again in the in the Nordic mythology, the Yggdrasil. 
Mm. So, so this this is another piece of evidence that the the northern religion, the the, the northern culture, is is basically shamanic. What about the Ouroboros? Is that something uh, going through as a universal well, it, theme? Um, Ouroboros. Um, yes, well, that crops up everywhere, doesn't it? Mm. Um, as a dragon or a snake? Yes, yes. I think it's it's a sort of um, multi-leveled symbol, the Ouroboros. Mm. It's um, it cr- crops up a lot in in alchemy, of course, as as a symbol of the the cyclical process, the, the cyclical transformation process that's going on all the time in um, in the in the world of matter. Mm. I I haven't read your book, unfortunately. If I had, uh, I would be able to direct the questions more specifically. But from the preview of the book, I see mm. you are uh, accounting for labyrinths. What's yeah. uh, the connection there? Oh well, yes, that's another another motif that I could have mentioned. Um, like the like the symbol of the world tree, the labyrinth. This um, you get this in obviously in the story of the Cretan labyrinth, the Cretan labyrinth where the Minotaur, the, yes, where the Minotaur was kept in the labyrinth, mm. and um, Theseus went into the labyrinth and killed the Minotaur and released all the prisoners. And um, then um, after that, they went to the island of Delos. And in celebration, they danced what was called the crane dance, which was a kind of um, dance that was performed in a, a labyrinthine pattern. Mm. Now, uh, you get variations of this crane dance in many different places. There's, there's uh, for example, a dance that's performed in the, the Faroe Isles, uh, which is, ah, yeah, right. <laughs> which is, which seems to be a variation of this, this crane dance. Um, and I, I believe it's still danced in, in Greece. Right. So, um, the, the labyrinth, again, you find the labyrinth, the labyrinths, um, by the way, they were found in Siberia, in that area that I talked about earlier, mm. along with these other remains. Um, and you find labyrinths all over, all over the northern hemisphere, and right down into the Native American Indian territories in North America. Yeah. And and the the interesting thing is that the the classical Cretan pattern is is found all over the place. So yeah, I see you have uh, you're depicting a stone labyrinth in Finland among yes, other yes, things. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because the, the, the interesting thing about the whole story of the Cretan labyrinth is that, or, or the, the, the Trojan labyrinth, the, the, the lab, labyrinths are often referred to as Troy towns. Mm. And it's, it's usually, that's usually explained. The, the usual explanation is that the city of Troy somehow had the character of a labyrinth or was... Um, interesting. They say the same about Atlantis. Oh really? Oh, yeah. Well, the concentric circles, at least. Yes. But yes. but obviously, if you're going to sail through concentric circles, you need entrances. Yeah, yeah. But um, in fact, I think a more likely explanation is that the story of the story of Troy um, is in fact symbolic. It's a symbolic story 
about the freeing of the spring goddess from winters, uh, Helen of Troy being the spring goddess. Mm. So um, the um, the Greeks Greeks or the Spartans go in and uh, rescue rescue her. Um, now you you get the name you get variations of the name Troy all over all over the place all over Europe. So I think it's it's, it's actually more likely that that um, the Troy the, the 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 name Troy or Troya is is actually a name for winter. It actually means winter. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've been to the alleged Troy. You know, you have, yeah, yes, I, uh, which is now located in Western Turkey, next to yes. Smyrna, Izmir. Right, uh, and yes. they have a huge wooden horse there. Oh, right, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. like a reconstruction, right? Because they've been yes. excavating. But yes. you know, well, an, yeah. A th- uh, one theory is that the horse wasn't, in fact, it wasn't in fact a horse, but it was a ship. Right. But uh, oh, we oh, don't. Oh, the, 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 I mean, Viking ships have uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> heads like that. But if Troy was a common word, then yeah. and, and and like you said elsewhere, mm. and probably also in your book, you said that it's more likely that the place names comes from the myth rather than the opposite. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. And then this this Troy may just have been commemorating the myth. Yeah, and uh, either way, I, don't, I I think there would be. I mean, you don't have to be advanced to realize that. Hey, here's a wooden structure. <laughs> there may be soldiers inside. I mean, that's it, it's kind of ludicrous. Yeah, it is a bit. Yeah. I, I, I would I would uh, guillotine my soldiers if they didn't examine the inside <laughs> yes. of such a structure. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, well, the, um, um, of course, the, the Vikings often referred to a ship as the horse of the sea. Right, right, right. So it could well have been a ship. Mm. Uh, which they would need if there, it was an island in the north. Now, um, you also depict an interesting map. One of them are from Mercator, I think. Oh, I, yes. I, I've seen many, many ancient maps yeah. Which depict huge anomalies. I mean, they they follow the traditional stuff. Yeah. And then suddenly they introduce an anomaly. Mm-hmm. For especially in the north. Yes. So so could we use maps as evidence for for something here? Well, possibly. I mean that that map is is was done by Mercator at, at second or third hand, I think. So. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't think we can place much reliance on it. I mean, it shows what purports to be the North Pole, a, a sort of a lake at the North Pole with an island in the middle, mm. and, and four rivers which go into this lake. Um, but um, as I say, it was it was built on Mercator's reading of descriptions of the North, probably um, secondhand from Pythias. So um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but we have very many ancient maps, even Chinese maps, uh, all over the world actually, that depicts uh, interesting tidbits that they shouldn't be able to. Very famous one, of course, is uh, Piri Rice, the Turkish admiral. Ah, uh, yes. That, that, of course, that that is fascinating because that appears to show the. Well, it does show the coast of um, Antarctica underneath the ice. 
so, so how could how could the people have made have, who made that map have known what the coastline looked like? Exactly. I yeah. think it's in the 60s we we discovered it through echo. Yeah. Uh, what's it right. Called? Right. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and 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 logic just says, okay, if the South Pole was dry at some point. Mm. Then obviously also the North Pole. Yes, yes, <laughs> that goes without saying. That is right? logical. Yes, yes, yes. So, so there are stuff there. Now, in your book, you're uh, talking about something that many people are not very aware of, <laughs> and and me included actually, and that's the Russian revival, I guess. Oh yes, yes. Well, how do you account for this? Well, what's going on this, there? This is something that fascinates me a great deal, because. Um, well, I've, I've studied Russian, and I'm very fond of the Russian language, and I've been to Russia, and um, I love Russia, actually. I'm a great Russophile, mm. and um, I'm very fascinated by what's going on in Russia right now, because in the wake of communism, there's a great spiritual revival and a great spiritual search going on, because during the communist years, spirituality was more or less suppressed. And now it's all coming up again, and there's a great spiritual hunger, and they're looking in different directions. Um, there's, there's been a, a huge return to the Russian Orthodox Church, and there are thousands of churches being built all over the, the place with full congregations. Other Russians are turning to things like the, the, the Rurik movement, anthroposophy, theosophy, and New Age, and so on. Hmm. And there's another group that is turning back to the pre-Christian pagan traditions of Russia. This is also a, a, a very vibrant movement. So all of this I find very fascinating. And there's a kind of a neo-Hyperborean movement, which is part of this. And this has given rise to artists and writers who have taken up this Hyperborean theme uh, I mentioned I've mentioned this in the book. There are a series of remarkable paintings of sh showing Hyperborean cities and people um, in sleighs being drawn by mammoths and enormous ports with with ships coming and going. And um, so all, all, all this is extremely fascinating. And it, it's also been, as I said, taken up in fiction. There are a number of a number of novels dealing with this Hyperborean theme, and archaeologists who are continuing to explore the region in northern Russia next next to the Arctic. So they are actually uh, doing new excavations in those areas oh, now. Oh yes, they're doing new excavations, and they've come up with new discoveries. Mm. So all this is most interesting, I find. So they are actually deliberately looking for evidence of uh, Hyperborean civilization and there are I think discovering I, stuff. I think they are, yes. Mm. Yes. That's most interesting. Is this uh, also connected to the political side of it uh, or, or, or is it not necessarily a connection there? Because we know the extreme right wing often, well, some would say hijack these traditions. There, um, yeah. there, 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 there is a, a nationalistic element, yes, in this. Um, it's not, I don't think it's typical or central to, um, to this movement. 
but um, yes, it's it's there, I would say. Yeah, because if you look at uh, Iceland, because unfortunately, I mean, ma- many Americans and half our audience are American. Many Americans have a very romantic mm. view of Scandinavia and especially Norway. Mm. I yeah. think that we are more or less directly, I mean, we are di- direct descendants of Vikings, but they imagine that if you go to a remote Norwegian village, you'll you'll mm. find some ancient tradition. Now, there are small pockets of survival in terms of family traditions and, and mm. other stuff that has to, has to have cloaked itself in Christianity to survive. But for the most part, Norway is disconnected from its tradition and mm. Black Plague had lots to do with it. Oh, yeah. But even before the Black Plague, we were struggling. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you go further north to the mm. Finns, Finnish people are not... Unlike many people think that Finnish people are, are the same as the Scandinavians, but they're not. They are actually a Turkic people. Oh, yes. And, mm. and their language, I mean, originally, and the language is also different. And mm. But mm. they ha- still have similarities in their spirituality, especially the shamanic aspect. Yeah. And yeah. then you have the Laps or the mm. Samis. I actually have an ex-girlfriend who, who was a Sami Nuaida. Really? <laughs> which is, a, mm. yeah, that's a shaman. Uh, and they have tr- uh, managed to preserve. But if you go to Iceland, you will find a much better uh, survival of the tradition than you oh, can yes. ever dream of. And there it's not baked into uh, politics so much. And I think it's because if you have been suppressed and you are mm. reviving something, then you come from a point of complexity you, mm-hmm. uh, you feel inferior and you want to grasp mm. back to the proudness right but if yeah, you've never yeah. been bothered with mm-hmm. <laughs> yes like Icelandic, you don't have that need to prove anything right you, yeah, you know it's okay and and yeah. even their christian period was uh by choice <laughs> yeah. unlike us well, well their, their arm was twisted to become christian pardon their, their, their arm was twist. They had their arm twisted to become Christian, um, because the, the the Norwegian king threatened to kill or maim all Icelanders right. in in Norway right. unless Iceland converted. So um, what what they did? Yeah, but but I would argue twisting the arm is much better than have, having your head chopped off. We we became well, Christians by this word. Yeah. Yes. Well, it it was a, it was an Icelandic priest who um made the they they they, um they gave him the decision to make should we become christian or not and he decided yes okay we'll become christian provided that people in private can go on worshiping the old gods Mm -hmm. so um yes you could you could say it was a choice very very pragmatical it it reminds me of the kassars (laughs) uh, the kassars yeah very pragmatical choice yeah. of of uh, transforming the tradition. It was yes, yes. And I, I, my point is, despite cloaking a lot of stuff in Christianity, the mm. connection with the earth mm. in Iceland and with the tradition is much more vibrant there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is yes, and of course you you have the whole poetic poetic tradition. The um, and you have the literature, the the Edda, the Eddas, and the sagas. Mm. Um, so it's it's all it's all there, and also in folk traditions like the belief in the elves and so on. Yeah. So it, it's very much part of the air you breathe in Iceland. Mm. 
Yeah, you will find people who are seriously devotees. I mean, you will find it in Norway too, but that's due to a revival in the 60s mm. or something. Yeah. But uh, like like Bifrost, I can give a shout out to them. Bifrost, which is the Norse religion oh, yes, society. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, but in Iceland, you you will uh, mm. find people who have had uh, living traditions, especially through families. Like you said, mm. it was in private. Yeah. Yeah. So and 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 I believe there's an Icelander also who has written the foreword to your book. Uh, Hil- Hilmar Ern Hilmerson. Yes, he is um, a very old friend of mine. He is now Asherja Gordi. Um, he's head of the uh, the pagan community in Iceland, the Asatru Fellowship, mm. and it's a very vibrant and growing community. That they have now, I think, over four thousand members. Um, in a country of what about just over three hundred thousand, so it's it's quite a large percentage of the population, and the members include some quite influential people. They they include politicians, journalists, university professors. So it's not a kind of um, alternative hippie kind of thing. You know, it's it's mm. it's quite mainstream actually. Mm. So. Uh, Yes. Yeah, we both have uh, have friends in that uh, network. Yeah. Okay, so that covers Iceland. Um, yeah, before we go over to your uh, almost a CV, is there any other things you want to speak o- about or address that you are touching in the book? Again, I haven't read it, so... Uh, I'm um, limited in how much I can extract and squeeze out of you. But I want to say this. Mm. Lots of famous authors have been bragging about the book because I see here uh, quotes from Jocelyn Goodwin that we have mentioned. Arthur's Versalus. Herbie Brannan. Yes, yes. I have books by all those guys and and even Tobias Churton. Yes, yes, yes. But is there anything or other aspects of this we should touch? Um, I think we've <clears throat> we've covered it pretty well. Mm. Okay, so then we could move to other books you've made. Obviously, mm. we're not going to discuss them, but uh, they need a shout out. Mm. Um, what was the first book you published? Was that Eliphas Levi and the Occult? No, no it, it was a book on astrology, history of astrology, called The Astrologers and Their Creed. Right, that's a classic, yes. yes. I've never read it, but I've seen yeah. it around. Mm. Is astrology featured in the Nordic tradition? Uh, good <laughs> good question. I mean, some sort of astrology. I, I don't expect it to be identical to the one practiced today. But shouldn't it be if they have structures pointing to astronomical phenomenons? Well, if you <clears throat> if you consider the mythology around the Great Bear to be astrological... Yes, I go into that in the in the book. The, the the significance of the bear, the great bear. Yeah, because the Russians are big on the bear, are they not? Yes, <laughs> and I think that's I think that's no coincidence that the bear is sort of right. the um, symbolic animal of Russia. But you know, you know the Neanderthals, they were mm. worshipping bears. Were they? They were. Yeah, they were. We we know now. Of course, they were much more advanced than we've given them credit for. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they were just like any other uh, tribe. But essential in their religion was the bear. Oh, yes. And and now they, you know, there are those who think that 
you know, we are all Homo sapiens, yes. But mm. the interesting thing is that uh, the Europeans seems to be mixed in with Neanderthal. Oh, yeah. The Asians with the Denisovans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they thought that uh, African people, you know, black south of Sahara, they thought that, uh, well, they were just uh, Homo sapiens because they had neither. Uh, but now they have found a third ancient uh, anthropological strain. I forgot what oh, yeah. they call it. Oh, yeah. But which is, is specific to them. So it seems that mm. we all have a common Homo sapiens heritage and then we've mm-hmm. been mixed in with different uh, yes. Yes. local ancient tribes. And if the uh, Neanderthals are bear-worshipping, it kind mm. of indicates that they must have had some kind of connection to an um, ancient nordic tradition then yeah, i well, mean it's a stretch but it's it's not outrageous yeah, well, i mean i mean the the word the word bear in greek is arctos um, hence the name arctic oh, i thought it was ursa but that may be latin no, no, that, that that's that's the latin ursa right, ursa right. major yeah right uh, but the greek is is arctos which, okay. is, which is why the region is called the arctic ah. And um, it's, oh, it, you also get variations of it in, for example, <clears throat> the name Artus, King King Arthur. Right, right. Uh, because the bear was considered a kind of epitome of strength and courage. Mm. Values so, which have been a hold uh, high by yeah. these cultures. Yes, yes. That's interesting. So, mm. okay, so your first book was on astrology. Um, yeah. But I, I guess when you lived in Britain, you went that into esoterica. That was later. Oh, I was. Oh, you were? Oh, no. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, from my early 20s. Ah, okay. I mean, my, my astrology book came out when I was only 25. And so... Uh, and, and I see the Elifas Levy book was written in 72 Published in published 72. in seventy two. Published yeah. in seventy two. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Oh yes. So I've been interested in these things uh, since yeah since my since my undergraduate days basically, mm. and um, I've been involved actively in certain things. I started off I started off with more or less a kind of scholarly interest in these things, but then I <clears throat> wanted to become more actively involved, and I was took part in various groups. It pulls you in, doesn't it? <laughs> it pulls you in. So I, I was and, in, and one, in own groups. Uh, well, I was in one particular group, um, which was public, was practicing a kind of a golden dawn type of magic. Uh, servants uh, of the light, maybe? Uh, no, not servants of the light. Although I knew people in servants of the light, um, but uh, no, it was a, a small group. It's actually, I don't know if you, do you know Tanya Luhrmann's book? Uh, doesn't ring a bell, no, no. Uh, well, she's she's an American anthropologist who wrote her doctorate at Cambridge on magical groups in England. Oh, and wow. um, one of the groups that I was involved in. Uh, so if, in, in her book, I'm actually mentioned under another name. Hmm. But anyway, so I... I have yeah, some... to protect your academic um... <laughs> probably yes mm, yeah. yeah so um i i was yeah so i was involved in that kind of golden dawn type of magic for a while mm. um but then over, over a longer period i moved over to the pagan tradition yeah because that would be my guess yeah because of your current interests yes yes 
So uh, during the course of writing that astrology book, I had uh, I came into contact with the whole domain of the esoteric traditions as a whole. And uh, I went on. I discovered that um, Eliphas Levi was an important figure in the Western esoteric tradition. So I decided to write a book about Levi and his age. So it starts around the end of the 18th century and goes on to the early 20th century with Levi as the, the main sort of central focus of the book. So that was my second book. And then I went on to write a book on the Rosicrucians, which was originally published as the Rosy Cross Unveiled. Yeah, uh, I have both versions, actually. Oh, right, yes. Hmm. And then I published another book on the Rosicrucians called The Rose Cross and the Age of Reason, which is actually based on my doctoral thesis. Yeah, have that one, too. You, you have that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Then uh, some of my other books, a book, a biography of King Ludwig II of Bavaria, which is not particularly esoteric, but it, he's a figure who has always fascinated me. And my book is basically the most thorough biography in English mm, of him. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Another subject that has always in- interested me is uh, horticulture, and in particular the uh, sacred and symbolic dimensions of garden design. So another book of mine is called Gardens of the Gods, which is an examination of sacred and symbolic gardens uh, at different traditions and, di- and in different uh, parts of the world and different periods. Oh, interesting. I knew, I knew agriculture was closely tied to spirituality, mm. but even gardening. <laughs> yes, uh, more the iconographic and symbolic aspects of garden design. Okay. The, 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 the layout of the garden the statuary, the associations, the mythological associations of the plants, and right, so on, right. and so the on. The feng, shu- feng shui of gardens. Feng shui, feng shui comes, feng shui comes into it as well. Right, yes. Right. So that was another book I wrote, and also I, to some extent, uh, practice what I preach because my wife and I have a garden here. Oh, it's so British. <laughs> so, uh, it's a, it's a very British um, activity. Yes, gardening. Yeah. Uh, like like the hobbits, you know. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, I'm, but you you also wrote, wrote uh, uh, fiction, haven't you? I've written fiction. I've written three volumes of short stories and an esoteric novel called Return of the Tetrad. I, I've been I, I've been eyeing that book because of the title. So I was going to ask you. So tell us, what's that about? Return of the Tetrad is is uh, shall we say uh, it, it's the, the the narrator of the story is very loosely based on myself as a young man. He's um, a young journalist called Paul Cairns who comes into contact with a sort of guru figure who's called Gilbert North in the book. <laughs> North. Gilbert North. <laughs> yeah. Who, who is an initiate of a magical order. And he initiates this young guy into the magical order. And the story involves a quest for four objects which correspond to the four suits of the tarot Mm. a wand a sword um, a pentacle and one one yes wand swore pentacle and cup 
and cup and cup mm. yes exactly so the story involves the, the the idea that these these four objects were existed at one point in britain and were dispersed and the task is to, to bring them together again and all kinds of adventures occur along the way the the, the story the story itself is fantasy, but the, the central character, as I say, is loosely based on myself at that time. And the Gilbert North character is based on somebody I knew. So it is, some of it is is very sort of over the top. There are there are magical battles and, and things like that. <laughs> so it's it's quite over the top. So it uh, sounds like it could be made into a movie then. Oh, that would be that would be great if it were made into a movie. But would, but uh, is there also a spiritual aspect to it? Like it's not just Harry Potter. I'm, I suspect <laughs> you're injecting it with esoteric lore. Oh yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. It, it has. I can a, see that from the title. Yeah, and it, it has a serious message. Mm. So that, like like Churton said, uh, there can be more truths in fiction yes, than in many yes. facts in so-called non-fiction mm. books. Oh yeah, he's 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 pretty articulate, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and loves yeah. to talk. Yeah, yes. Well, I I start off the novel with quote from um, it's a, a Sufi a Sufi saying. I just I'll just read it. Mm-hmm. It says, "Take a lie, a myth, and a fact, and you get somewhere near the truth." <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Who who is that? The quoting. Uh, it, it's not attributed to any particular person. It's just oh, okay. it's just a Sufi saying. Adage, right, right. Yeah. It's a brilliant one. I haven't heard that one, ah. but I'll, I'll I'll start using it. <laughs> right. So um, yeah, and I, I have to say, your Rosicrucian books, I can actually mm. opinionate about them because I read them. Um, oh, yeah. I'll say the Rosicrucian and Age of Reason is more in depth in a way. Yes. Whereas the Rosicrucian history, mythical and rituals of an order, those are, it's a good introduction to the history of Rosicrucianism. But I'd say in terms of the experienced reader, I'd rather go for Eliphas Levy and the French Occult Revival or or the Rosecross and Age of Reason. Ah, yes, yes. Well, there's another another book of mine I should mention called The Lebensborn Spy, which uh, is not at all esoteric. Uh, it's a spy thriller. Yeah. Yes, yes. But it, there is there is one slight shall, shall I say, one one slight element in it from from the Nordic mythology because there's a particular figure from the there's a particular Nordic god who appears at certain points in the book, but um, only the very informed reader will will spot that. Mm. It, they describe it as George Orwell meets John Lee Carrere. Ah, yes. That was Herbie Brennan who said that. Mm. Sounds like a book I should get my mother. She's into spy uh, spy novels. <laughs> ah, well, it's it's um, set at the time of the Cold War. Right. Part, partly in Germany and partly in Denmark. All right. Is the is the Odessa featuring here? No, no, mm. no. It's um, it has to do with the. It's it's based on historical facts. Uh, which it has to do with the the Lebensborn project, which was a series. It was a chain of maternity and children's homes run by the Nazi SS, partly for the children of women in the occupied countries who had become pregnant by German soldiers mm. and um, wanted to give their children away to avoid this, the stigma. Yeah. 
And after the war, some of these children ended up in East Germany and the East German intelligence service hit on the idea of using them as spies, sending wow. them back. That's so. That, that's that's like the Ottomans did with the Janissaries, kind of. Ah, uh, yes. They exploit that uh, weakness because they they can be shaped and formed. They have no right. roots, like right. Yeah. So that, that that's so it's sinister, yes. but it's brilliant. Very, very I sin- didn't know this. Yeah, very sinister. So the Stasi used them, recruited them, and reused them. Well, I don't know whether it was the Stasi or another branch. I, in my story, in my story, it's the Stasi. Okay. Um, and um, they, um, but they then found that these, most of these people were so traumatized by the Lebensborn experience that they weren't suitable as spies. Ah, so <laughs> backfired. <laughs> yes, but they then they then started getting their agents to masquerade as these Lebensborn, these ex-Lebensborn inmates. And my story is based on one particular case where it was it was actually a, a, a Norwegian case where a Stasi agent went to Norway, made contact with the woman he claimed to be his mother, mm-hmm. and she hadn't seen him since he was a baby. Mm. So she she uh, she uh, she accepted him as her son and. He he was accepted by the whole family, take, taken into the family. Oh my God, that's so evil! Yeah, yeah, and he then he then started car- uh, spying activities for for East Germany. Then came the then came the fall of the wall and the reunification, and he was exposed. And of course, it was a tragic thing because you know the fa- the family felt betrayed. Yeah, and they had a relation with him and everything then. Yes, and um, the, uh, even more tragic was that the real son, by the time the real son heard about this, the mother had died. So uh, anyway, my my story is loosely based on this this case. Well, it sounds like a great plot, I have to say. I mean, uh, just just a real life story is interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not well, understanding when you start spinning up on it. Well, it, it, it involves one character who's based on this this spy that I just talked about. Mm. Um, but there's another character, there's a parallel story of another man growing up in East Berlin, and there's a connection between these two, which is worked out in a suspenseful way during the, the, the course of the story. Mm. So, uh, All right. if you read it, I hope you'll enjoy it. Mm. Well, I, I I think I should give it as uh, I, I'm going to get it and give it to my mother. She oh, great! Enjoy it. Um, yes. So yeah, you know, because the return of the tetrad it reminds me in the wake of I guess Da Vinci Code, but uh, also other books that uh, it's been a flood of books coming mm. uh, when they realized oh esoterica can be used in in fiction yeah yes. <laughs> novel. yeah i mean i mean bulwer lytton knew that but that's a long time ago yes and so i also know that uh, yeah you have the rule of four i think oh was yes the book that came yes and yes. right so and right, then right. and then goodwin wrote, wrote the real rule of four <laughs> yes yes <laughs> And you have also books, the real uh, Da Vinci Code, etc. So, so I guess mm. uh, that follows in the footprints of that more modern wave of esoteric novels. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you uh, you also might enjoy my three volumes of short stories, 
Mm-hmm. What's that called? Um, well, there's one of them called one of them is called Master of the Starlit Grove, Master of the Starlit Grove, mm. and um, <clears throat> there are several stories in it. But the, the the one of that title deals with the concept of the egregore, which is a a kind of collective thought form on the etheric plane created by many people thinking the same thoughts and focusing on the same symbols. Mm. And the idea in my story is that there was a pagan egregore that was created at the time of the conversion to Christianity to act as a kind of ark to preserve the pagan religion right. for the time when Christianity would ret- retreat and paganism could reappear. Mm. So that's that's the basic theme of that story. And then, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very interesting concept in and by itself. Yes. Well, I, I sort of I sort of believe in the existence of egregores. Mm. I mean, if we want to use a more modern language, uh, because mm. this is from the magical, mythical uh, language. But if you yeah. want to, we could say that uh, you know Rupert Sheldrake. Yes, he's talking about field, yes, consciousness, and and so I think um, if and Jung has touched this with archetypes, right? Yes, I think there's a connection here because uh, they say, for example, in esoterica, they say that groups who uh, work with the same ideas kind of yeah. develop egregore. It doesn't even have to be uh, religious or spiritual. Any kind of group really yes, well, has its egregore. Well, even <clears throat> even a football crowd. <laughs> yes. Yes, although I would hate to think what the effects of that egregore would be, <laughs> hooligan egregore. But I'll say a, a political rally, a, a crowded political rally. Right, right. Good point. Or, or, uh, or even a political party, Could, uh, and maybe a family, even. Yeah, a family certainly. Yes, mm, yes. Mm. Oh yes, these... and, and I and I think that if you do have a dormant egregore. Mm. You only need uh, some keys to reconnect with it, so to That's speak, right. which I believe would be symbolism, be found in symbols. Symbols, yes. And maybe also actions, rituals. Actions, uh, e- even certain words, expressions. Mm. Mm. And maybe certain sound frequencies too. Yes, absolutely. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah, now we're touching deeper stuff <laughs> yes. uh, than mere history. But uh, mm. no, this is a very interesting concept. So you play around with that in a story. Yes, is the story Master, <coughs> Master of the Starlit Grove. And then I have two other collections of short stories. One is called The Weird Garden, with The Weird Garden and Other Strange Tales. Weird spelt W-Y-R-D-E, W-Y-R-D. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and uh, then there's another collection called The Sorceress of Agartha. Ah. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, there's Agatha again. Yes, yes. But, you know, um, just backtracking to Egregora, I believe that, I don't believe, but in, in magic, ceremonial mm. uh, magic, uh, yeah. they work even with invoking Egregoras. And yes, that's then right. And they, then they became apparitions. Yes, 
yes. Lewis. Maybe that's that. Maybe that can explain why so many god forms are anthropomorphed or even uh, represented as animals. That these energies take these shapes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, there's um, the <clears throat> the German group Fraternitas Saturni, who I think used the concept of the egregore. Mm. They did. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think I think these egregores do exist. I think uh, in, they have some similarity to Jung's archetypes, but um, it's it's more like an archetype that is created. You know, it could, can be uh, they, these these egregores can be quite short-lived, whereas mm. uh, uh, Jung's archetypes are permanent. Yeah, perennial. Uh, for, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, be, I think that could be like levels of egregores, that the deeper they are, the more they, the longer they have existed, the more universal they become. Yes. Like, yes. like a hooligan egregore is probably short-lived, but... Yes, yes. <laughs> but mm. uh, if you talk about, like said, the Nordic gods, mm. then uh, they have been around for a while. I mean, other gods too, of course, but uh, if someone like dreams of a god, meet mm, a god mm. in a dream, for example, uh, and and get a revelation. So many people think they meet Jesus, right? Mm, mm, mm. Yes, that's true, yes, yes. And, and that's a very powerful energy in our time and day, uh, which is completely disconnected from the historic or even the original Christians. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> The right. modern Jesus, I mean. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> Jung has an interesting simile in in one of his essays where he says that a god is like a river and it may be that the source of the river dries up and then the river disappears but mm. then when when the water starts to flow again it returns to the original river riverbed and the river is there again so i think this is <clears throat> this is what is happening with the pagan gods today mm. It's a, it's a brilliant uh, metaphor. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, it just struck me, Chris, that, uh, you know, I heard another interview with you where you mentioned that you're uh, the guy with the preface to your book. Yeah. He said he had met a god. It just struck me that that may be what we were just talking about, that he actually encountered uh, an embodiment of an egregore. Uh, well, this, I think you're thinking of uh, Svenborn, the, the founder of the of the Asatru movement. Oh, it was the founder. Okay, not the guy who wrote. It, yes, uh, uh, okay. I think it was Sven Svenbjorn Bentheinsen mm. who uh, said that he had actually met Odin on one occasion when he was out for a walk in the country. And and where else would that egregore manifest than in Iceland, right? Uh, You'd be hard pressed to find Odin in in Egypt, for example. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Well, um, this is another <clears throat> another thing that I feel about paganism that it's essentially local. As mm. as you say, you wouldn't find you wouldn't find Odin in Egypt. So the the uh, paganism is so it's connected to uh, the land. Space. It's, it's connected to it's connected to the land, to the local traditions, the local mythology, the language that has evolved in a particular region, the customs, 
uh, and all of that. And probably the energy of the land. The energy of the land as well. Ley lines and stuff. Uh, all, all of that, all of that, yes. Mm-hmm. But then we have mm-hmm. an interesting uh, phenomenon when we see that many gods are similar. Let's say, take a classical, let's say Tooth in Egypt becomes Hermes in Greek, becomes yes, Mercury. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe Loki in Norse. I'm not sure who he would be in Norse. But then, then you could say that th- th- we are talking archetypes because then they just have different masks, different. Yeah, I think that. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, then we like astrology. Then we're talking about universal energies that we yes. are just conceiving uh, differently. Yeah. In, yeah. in our inception of them. Yeah, I think that's true. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Well, interesting. Okay, before we we bid you adieu, I wanna. You you've been involved in some very noteworthy things. For example, uh, Exeter. Yes. Where you've been working was was it the first uh, university? No, Sorbonne was probably the first, but it's one of the very early ones with esoteric. Yes. Well, <clears throat> I think the Sorbonne was the the first program. That was at the um, at a branch of the Sorbonne called the École Pratique des Hautes Études, which was uh, the the original. I think I'm right in saying it was started by a man called François Secret. I think he was the first professor, and then it was then uh, Antoine Fèvre became the professor. Mm. Um, I, but that that was a that was a graduate program. Uh, at the Sorbonne. Then later on came the program at Amsterdam University, headed by Walter Hanegraaf. You probably know his work. Yeah, famous. Yeah, and then came our program at Exeter. But what was different about the Exeter program was that it was a distance learning program. So, so you, anyone could partake. Uh, basically anyone who could show that they were sufficiently qualified could take part, yes. Mm. So the students weren't resident at Exeter. They came actually from all over the world. We had people who came from far and wide. There was um, one woman who came from Alaska. Wow. Um, another came from Canada. Um, someone came from Sweden. One came from Romania. So they they came from all over the place to these weekend seminars, about three seminars a year. And for for these people, it was a unique opportunity. It was the the only possibility for them to study with the Western esoteric tradition in depth. Must have been an interesting egregore you evoked there. <laughs> I think <laughs> but, I think I think we did, yes. <laughs> but did you also use uh, digital tools like uh, webcam and email and stuff like that? It, we used we used email a lot and the telephone. Hmm. We the, the the student would have a supervisor and every so often the stu- supervisor would talk on the phone to the student. When did you erect this in Exeter? Uh, it was about, uh, let me see, about 2005 or six. So that's why you could partake as a professor, even though you lived in Germany at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let's let's see. Uh, well, Nicholas Goodrich Clark uh, died in 2012, 
So it was. Um, it would have been around 2006 or seven that the program was. And he, he's the one who initiated this. Yes. Yeah, he initiated it, and he he was a very vital and charismatic and energetic figure. And obviously, many famous books like, for example, The Occult Roots of Nazism is a yes, classic. Exactly, yes, yes. And, and I, I also noticed that his wife is writing spiritual books. Oh, yes, Claire, yes. She was, she was also part of the program. Mm. But, uh, so it was, it was a great tragedy when he died very suddenly and very unexpectedly. Did that ruin the, the study? Yes, it, it did really, because the, the university somehow... I think they had sort of lost interest in the project, and when he died, I think they sort of. Um, I think the I think the the momentum went out of it basically. Yeah. Yeah, because Tobias Churton was expressed profound disappointment because he saw the potentiality. Yeah. Yeah. And was very very annoyed with the university. That, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was it was a great pity. Mm. Yeah. There are universities um, in, in other parts of the world, in the States, for example, where some courses are dealing with esoteric subjects, but under other headings like mm. comparative religion or… Yeah, because Goodwin never… Uh, there was never an esoteric… I mean, he, he, he has written a million esoteric books, but always under the guise of other subject fields like music or history. Yes, yes. Well, he he was professor of music at Colgate University, and yet he wrote uh, books about Atlantis and yes, <laughs> what not. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. So uh, okay, it's an interesting part of modern academic history, uh, but and it doesn't exist anymore, does it? Or is there some remnant of it at Exeter? No, it's uh, <clears throat> completely folded it's up. It's gone, unfortunately. Okay. Too bad, mm. too bad. Mm. And, and lastly, you said you were involved in uh, UN. What did you do there? Oh, well, I, uh, I worked in New York for four years for the United Nations Development Program. I was doing publications work. I was editor of a magazine on development projects and traveling all around the world reporting on those projects. But but that's I mean what's your field uh, academically? Isn't that history? Yes, basically my doctorate was in history. Yeah. I, um, what, so what, what does that what, have to do? With well, what, what happened was I was I was married to an American woman, and that was uh, let's see, um, around the um, late 1980s, <clears throat> and uh, we decided that. We wanted to go into the academic world. So we were living in England at the time. And I, I went back to Oxford where I'd been an undergraduate and did a, a doctorate. That, that was my second Rosicrucian book. Mm. My wife did a, my then wife did a doctorate at the Royal College of Art in London. And then we went to the States. That was 1989 with the intention of finding academic positions. But instead, I ended up working for the United Nations because right. I'd, I'd arrived at the wrong time of year to apply for academic jobs. So I looked around for something else to do in the meantime. And through a connection, I ended up working for the UN 
which turned out to be, in the first place, a lot better paid than academic positions. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Anything is paid better than academic positions. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, a lot more interesting. So I had a very, I had a very interesting four years. Because you could travel a lot? Oh, yeah, I traveled all over the world. So you've been uh, all over the north then? Um, I've been all over, uh, all over the third world and, um, both, he- both. What about Russia? You've been in. Been oh, yes, I've been, I've been to Russia, yes. Scandinavia? Yes. Scandinavia, I've been to, uh, let's see, I've been to all the Scandinavian countries. And Iceland, I assume. And, and Iceland, yes. Mm. And, uh, <clears throat> well, so then, um, my job at the UN in New York came to an end. And I moved back to England. By, by that time, my marriage had come unstuck. I moved back to London. And within a couple of months, I'd found a job in Hamburg with the UNESCO. So I moved to Hamburg. Mm. And I've been in Germany ever since. So but I've, for, for my working life, I've had two careers. Because you, 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 you can't live on writing esoteric books. No. So I, I, I had to have a job. You, I mean, you can hardly live on writing books per se. So. That's that's right. Yes. So, but but now I'm retired from UNESCO, so now I can concentrate on writing and doing the things that really interest me. Mm. And you paid your due to to Germany as a German citizen with the Lebensborn spy and oh. the Swan King. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. So, do you have any any uh, books in the pipeline? Um, well. Yes, I'm, let's say I'm, I'm writing something at the moment, which is related to the northern tradition. But <clears throat> I don't want to say too much about it at the moment because it's in a very embryonic stage. Yeah, that's that's normal. All all the authors yeah. we interview say that. So yeah, we, yeah. We, we, we know, we accept that. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. cool. So you're, you're following up on that uh, Arctos um, tread. So well, to speak. it's, it's, a, it's a, different, a different sort of a different sort of approach. Um, hopefully it'll be published one day. But is the subject field history or is uh, it more spirituality? Uh, it's it's more. Um, <clears throat> how shall I describe it? It's it's kind of personal reflections, thought, thoughts and reflections, but related to the Nordic tradition. Right. I got you. I got you. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. Good. Uh, whenever it is completed, we we can have you back then, you know. And, oh, by all means, yes. Uh, see your take on it. But mm. it's been brilliant to converse with you today. Yes, <clears throat> my pleasure. That's good. But as, as as long as you are happy with the content. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's good. Uh-huh. Well, it's been very interesting talking to you. I did so, too. So uh, 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 let's keep in touch. Yep. Let's do. And ho- hope to see you here sometime. Yeah, you may very well. Mm. And uh, by the way, it goes the other way too if you're in Norway. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, well, have a good evening. Yes, you too. Yeah. Bye for now. Bye. So much for today. Now, if you enjoyed this topic... I could uh, recommend another book except for Arctos and Chris's own Hyperborea book. Namely one by Dr. Peter Kingsley that was mentioned in the show and the book called A Story Waiting to Pierce You. This is basically about a very famous Hyperborean, the high priest Abaris. 
and you'll hear his take on it, but it's a great book, and you read it in less than a day. Now, remember people, we are still far too small in terms of listenership compared to our potential, and it hasn't helped that YouTube is quenching any independent media's possibility to grow organically. So if you listened to just one of our shows, no matter, never mind, you're off the hook. But if you have listened to at least two of our shows, I implore you to share them and to spread our shows. Now, of course, one thing is to just randomly share it on social media. But if there's a, like a specific topic, you know someone who's interested in that, send them the, the link to that show. That's the best way to spread. Because although it's better than nothing, just randomly sharing on Facebook, for example, doesn't have that great of an impact. But sharing is very important. It helps the algorithm uh, to squeeze out of the algorithm at least a little backing. And I've noticed that here and there, uh, some people have mentioned us, and we appreciate that, either if it's on Reddit or Face or Twitter or whatever. So we hope you continue to do that. It's so important to put us on the map. There's so many guests that never get back to us because they have no idea who we are. We could have so many great guests on if we just grew a little bigger. And growth has really been quenched the last years because of the rigging of the system after the big corporations took over YouTube and others. And um, they say, well, why don't you get on to other places like BitChute? Well, first of all, we are already on all podcasts. And uh, a public secret is that we have more shows out on the podcast channel than we have on YouTube. Although YouTube is our main scene and will still be. Um, you remember it takes a lot of time and energy to make a YouTube video. Even if it's just these stills. that We, we still are, are tied to the most of a certain way to do it that's uh, time consuming. But podcasts don't require anything else than just audio. So that's why we flushed a lot more shows out on a podcast channel. So if you go to, you don't have to go to Podbean, where which we have chosen, because we, you will find us, of course, at Google Podcast, Spotify, iTunes or Apple or whatever they're all called. So um, subscribe to us on the podcast channels too, if you use that format. That also helps us. Now, I am considering Minds, even BitShit, but I'm kind of annoyed with BitShit because they let any random person steal shows that take from original content creators like ourselves, upload it there, monetize it, and BitShit doesn't care even when we complain. So they are going too far in the opposite direction of YouTube. They're representing two polarities, if you like. But we'll see what we have resources to do. We may expand, but more importantly than us expanding to many platforms is you making us expand by liking our shows, that helps, and sharing them, of course. I'll read you a quote as customary before we part. It goes like this. Let us face ourselves. We are Hyperboreans. 
We know very well how far off we live. Neither by land nor by sea will you find a way to the Hyperboreans. Pindar already knew this about us. Beyond the north, ice and death, our life, our happiness. We have discovered happiness, we know the way. We have found the exit out of the labyrinth of thousands of years. Sad, none other than Friedrich Nietzsche. That's it. Thanks for staying with us. As always, I've been your host, Al. Thanks to your faithful support. And my toilet has teased. Be seeing you. Number one.